finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast that we where we read things, and then we talk about those things. And should I just get right into the stories? I feel like a lot of podcasts, they do like a little bit of a, a preamble beforehand. They're like... Did you kind of chat before they get into the thing? But I feel like I kind of rush right into it. But I guess maybe part of that is because the second half of this podcast is just a least conversation. I think so. Why don't you just tell them what we read and then we'll start. Sure. Uh, so the first story that we read, we read two short stories this week. Uh, the first one we read was the one that I picked. It's called Flower Mercy Needle Chain by Yoon Ha Lee. Yes. God, I should know because I picked it, but I have a really... Crummy memory. I get all the parts right, but I, they fl- I flip the orders around in my head. Yeah, so that's the one I picked. And then the story you picked was... Goodbye Brother by John Cheaper. And we're going to talk about my story first. Should I summarize it? Yeah, I think so. It is a story about a magic gun. Or maybe not magic, but some kind of fantastical gun that is being protected by a mysterious woman who is later sort of obliquely identified as being named Shiron. Uh, who lives in a space station. I guess it's a space station. It's called Black Wheel Station. The first time I read this story, I imagined it as a giant train station. Reading it now, it's pretty clear that it's supposed to be a space station. And she is approached by an like an android who wants, her to, wants to hire her services to use her gun, which erases people and their ancestral lines from existence. To destroy the man who made the gun and several other guns that have come into people's possession. So there's the flower that she has that erases ancestry. There's the needle that erases memories. It erases the victim's memories of the person firing the gun. And then there's the mercy, which just always kills whoever it's pointed at. And the chain, which is the new one that this android and his employers are worried about. Kills whoever the person who is being shot is loyal to. Whoever their commanding officer or immediate superior is. Right. They're killed. But whatever that means for the person. So they suggest that it could kill, like, parents or priests or stuff like that. And that's basically the bulk of the story is the the actual action of the narrative is literally just her meeting with the android. And then it ends with her coming to her decision. And it's sort of interspersed with flashbacks that flesh out... The backstory of the gun and the person protecting it. I thought it was interesting because all of the guns do very different things, but in a way, they all destroy some type of family connection. And I think that's sort of the theme of the guns. They destroy either the ancestral line or loyalty or people that you have a connection to. They're not just weapons that kill people. Except for the mercy, which is the odd man out. But I think erasing people's memories takes out something that they may have had a connection to. No, that's the needle. The mercy is the one that just kills whoever it gets shot at. Okay. That's the only... Yeah, I agree with you. I do think it's interesting that all the guns are about, like, severing connections, which is a really cool and interesting idea. And it makes sense where later on, Aragon is the name of the gunsmith who created all the guns. Later on... Shirin suggests that the flower was created as a way for Aragon to get revenge on a society that believed in ancestor worship. 
it, it sort of paints Aragon as almost a um, like a trickster mythological figure, and it makes sense that all these guns would be ways to get back at people. I thought it was interesting too that the weapon maker was actually a prisoner of the society that wanted her to make these guns. So it turns out that this person created a weapon that would destroy connections, but also, in a way, had gotten revenge for being a prisoner. Yeah. Well, I think that prisoner thing, like, it it, it suggests this, you know, very mythic, folkloric narrative, where, like, that feels like a familiar story. You know, the hubristic l- ruler imprisons someone... And enslaves them and doesn't under, like doesn't respect how clever that person is, and they get back at them in a very roundabout way, which ends up we end up seeing that playing out when the empress gives Shiran the gun and she fires it and erases her entire civilization. Right. I think it's also interesting that being a weapon and being a device that causes violence, the ramifications. Are, it's very transparent that the ramifications are long-standing after the act of firing the gun, which I think a lot of... I guess it's a comment almost on, like, the violence, gun violence in the country at this time because you can shoot a weapon and you could end someone's life, but the ramifications from that keeps rippling through. Yeah, well, I think it's very much like when you fire the flower, the only person that gets hurt is the person shooting it. Because everyone else is erased from existence. They never existed. They can't feel any pain or anything. They're just not there anymore. The only person that stays around and remembers things and is able to feel the ramifications of firing the flower is the person holding the gun. I thought it's a gun that kills the user, but in a very like roundabout, dramatic, psychological way. Well, I think that would make you be very mindful of when and if you use this gun. Yeah. And I think that's what the whole thing with these four guns, t- to be the assassin that wields these guns, you have to have an understanding of what you're going to be doing, mm-hmm. which I think is an interesting juxtaposition between these kind of thriller stories and thriller movies where, you know, you're shooting a gun, you're killing hundreds of people and you're just kind of, you have endless bullets. This, you really have to sort of think about why am I using this gun and what's going to happen if I use this gun? And I think she, as the keeper of this gun, is she is more of a keeper of the gun and less of the assassin that wields that gun. Because for her to use that gun, she needs to think about what she's doing and what's going to happen. Yeah. The gun is this really interesting like promise of power. Like You, you talked about, oh, this action movie mindset where you have infinite bullets. She even says that, like, the gun does not need to be loaded. It can fire emptiness. So this is like, you could, if you had the inclination, keep firing the flower over and over again until there was no life left in the universe. Well, I think she the burden of what she did the first time she shot that gun sort of influences her interaction with the android whose name is Jean Corang, I think that's how you say it, mm-hmm. and what he's asking her to do, because he comes to her, in essence, to hire her, but in a way, what he's asking her to do is rethink her whole like mindset about society and familial lines and the role of humanity and civilization, because mm-hmm. he himself is an android. Yes. It also raises the question of what is arrogant, because she's... 
Shirin erases the human race, but doesn't erase Aragon, the gunsmith. Yeah, I think she takes an, a really kind of provocative take on what he asked her to do and what she decides to do ultimately in the end. Because in her mind, she decides to protect the weapon maker by killing all of the weapon maker's children. Yeah, what did you think about the, the decision she comes to? Because what she the theory she presents to us and that drives her decision at the end is that the gun is a necessary part of the universe, that it's essentially a way for the universe to escape entropy by constantly resetting before the heat death. Because when she fires the gun, not only does it erase that dude's entire line, but it rewinds time back to when his line would have started. It goes back 857 years. So as long as the... From the perspective of the person holding the gun, you could keep firing it and keep taking the universe back and sacrificing these lines and preserve the universe eternally, which seems to be what she has decided is her role. Well, I, I think she definitely does see herself as a preserver because she's attached to these old-style paintings that she's created. And, in fact, she says to the android, I made these paintings because no one else remembers what these paintings look like. But then she destroys the painting. As she's leaving, she pulls it taunt and erases the mountain. But I think but she, she preserves the canvas, which I assume is like supposed to reflect her relationship to the universe. Right, and I imagine at some point she's going to reimagine a painting onto that. So she's she's destroying the world and she's preserving it, and she's also rebuilding it. Mm-hmm. I also like that um, Lightspeed Magazine does an audio version of the stories, which I thought was a nice component. Did you I, listen to the audio version? I did listen to the audio version. The first, I, I listened to the audio version multiple times and I read the story multiple times because the hardest thing I could wrap my head around is why would people want to use these guns? But why would people want to use any gun? Well, yes, but I think these, they're sort of like a riddle. Like you would have to think, why would I want to shoot this gun? Like why would I want the reaction that this gun has to happen? And that sort of... That was the hardest concept to understand about the story, but I think that was the the whole point of the story was to be provocative, to think about, like, why would you want to shoot a gun that would erase someone's family lineage? Like, what? But that's the thing. Every gun works like that. Exactly. Every gun erases someone's family lineage. You just don't get to see the lineage before you erase it when you fire a regular gun. Like, in the at the end of the day, the flower doesn't work that much differently from any other weapon. It just goes backwards because, as the story says in the beginning, determinism runs backwards. It's a regular gun operating in a universe that works a different way. I think that's what made it so provocative. It was almost like a surrealist story, mm-hmm. which I thought was really... And it kind of had that traditional science fiction story about two people meet at a way station and this interaction happens. And it's almost like in Arthur C. Clarke where... It, the action is very slow moving and it's kind of like a slow burn and it's mostly about this relationship that this sort of tentative like you know relationship that they form where they meet for a short period in this weird space and then an interaction happens and that interaction affects them in a way that's very complicated and profound as has been mentioned on this podcast before i read a lot of comics i've been reading comics Uh, Since I was a kid. And I have thusly encountered a lot of anti-gun stories. 
it's really funny that a science fiction story can be anti-gun because when you think about science fiction, a lot of it is about guns and about yeah. the military and space exploration where you need lasers and weapons and there's always these space assassins. I mean, I think that that sort of component of that gun or that kind of weapon is like a really big part of science fiction. Yeah, and what I was going to say, I think this is one of the most effective ones I've ever read, like way more than something like Batman's Seduction of the Gun or whatever. Because rather than being like uh, a morality play and, and coming down in judgment on people, what this is is like a meditation on the the power of a weapon and the nature of a weapon. And it does that so much more effectively than almost anything I've read by just doing that simple trick of whipping, like flipping the determinism. Like, all, just watching the gun work in reverse makes it, like, makes you aware of, like, how big a deal it is to take a life. Because you're severing all of this potential that this person could have had and all the people that would have come from this person and all the things they would have done and the stuff they would have built. And flipping that around so that you see that stuff before you fire the gun, you know, kind of puts you in awe of, like, something so simple as, like, a little thing that blows up and uses fucking the force of compressed air to shoot a piece of metal out. Well, I think that's what makes the assassin so such a great character because she has this obligation. She has an obligation to society and she has an obligation to this actual weapon. Mm-hmm. And her decision to protect the weapon maker is almost like she's also protecting this weapon in itself. Yeah. The, like the the android wants to destroy the weapon maker because the fourth gun is so destructive. Yeah. But in her mind, even though she has never seen the fourth gun, she decides that all four of the guns are important and she wants to in some way protect them. Well, I guess like, I mean, it's just, maybe she feels all four of the guns are important. It feels more like her decision is motivated entirely by the importance she's placed on the flower. And its role in the universe. Yeah, and it's a, it's kind of like her attachment and her symbiotic relationship to the flower is almost like this long tradition in literature of the the knight and the weapon that they are associated with. I mean, it's almost like King Arthur, like she wields this gun and this gun is part of her persona and her her kind of perception of herself yeah yeah also the the thing that like so this is another story like the dungeon master that i think was published in 2010 uh so i read it around the same point and it stuck with me for a long time and the thing that stuck with me is just that one sequence where she fires the gun and then is in a city she doesn't recognize 857 years too early and like that moment of like you do one thing you pull that this trigger, and now the entire universe is different, and you don't recognize any thing from the world. It's like so powerful, and it's like stuck with me forever. Like these like moments of like incredible consequence really like stick in my mind a lot. And I feel like this is one of the biggest I've ever seen in fiction. I think that's true because if you were in that situation, your first thought would be these guns are terrible; they have to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. Do what the android says. But I think the more the 
the multiple times that I read the story, I got a better understanding of her sense of obligation of what she had to do, which was to wield this gun because it was her obligation to society and humanity to make sure that this option existed for whatever reason. There had to be a reason why someone would use either one of these four guns, but not having that option was worse in her mind than actually using those guns. Sure. Well, I mean, destroying Aragon creates a universe that's subject to entropy again. Yeah, and I think she understands that the act of violence that she has to perform is important, I guess, like you said, to refresh civilization, to refresh history. And even though she may have a problem with the lineage, the sort of worshipping of the ancestors that's part of the culture of the civilization through all the manifestations. Also, the story's just, like, packed full of, like, cool ideas all smashing into each other. Like, there's that one little moment when she she threatens the Kerrang with the gun, and he's like, I can trace my lineage back to the first people to mark down a tally of rocks and birds. And, like, that briefest suggestion of, like, a civilization... That's where like programming and computation and calculation are so important that they remember the first people to count is yeah. so interesting. And then there's like, you know, the whole idea behind the station and her arrangement with the station where they'll like take care of the bodies. And, you know, there's all these other guns out there and you can just imagine all the other stories about them and the people that wield them. And then it ends with her going off to hunt down Aragon's descendants, which is like this would have been an introduction to a great novel. I don't think Lee's written anything that carries directly out from this, but I think some of the ideas from this are picked up in his other work. I think so. And I also think it's interesting to note that he identifies as Mm Korean-American, and I think that his take on ancestral lineages and the same thing you were saying about tracing the androids' history back to the time when people can't... I think that is a reflection of the culture of his Korean culture and how they had this sort of ancestor pride and how they look towards the past to identify themselves in the future. And I think that carries over into this story. Yeah, I think Shiran is definitely supposed to come from some a, a culture that's definitely, I think, influenced by his Korean heritage. I mean, there's that really great line where he says that looking at Shiran, you can tell that her... Her ancestry is mixed up with tigers and shape-shifting foxes. It's like a really nice little poetic way to suggest that because she's like, oh yeah, you know, everybody knows about those those stories and like the kitsune and all those different sort of like shape-shifting figures in Asian mythologies. I think you see that a lot. I mean, I already mentioned Arthur C. Clarke because I'm currently reading The Fountains of Paradise. Mm -hmm. And he sets this story in a land that's supposed to be like Sri Lanka. And he talks a lot about the sort of ancestral history and things like that. So I think a lot of science fiction writers take the past and elements of human civilization and seed their stories with it. And I think that this does that very well. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything else to, to say about it? No, it's it's the first time I've read any of his works, and I really enjoyed the story. 
I like the component the Lightspeed Magazine does with the podcast where you can listen to it. And I also thought it was very nice on the webpage where you could just click on the link and listen to the short story, which I thought was very nice. Yeah, that's that's real convenient. I have not listened to the audio version of this, I'm, but uh, but I might go back and do that now. After. I think it's. I mean, I thought it was really well done, and it's only like twenty four minutes, so it's kind of like a small break that you can take. Yeah, this is a pretty short story, much shorter than your pick, which I yes. guess we're moving on to now. I think so. So my choice was "Goodbye Brother" by John Cheever, which was found in the nineteen seventy eight collection of short stories that he had written, and this is one of his most famous works. I have to say, no one gets murdered. So I only went one story where I had a murder. I, I was convinced in my mind that this story ends with him killing the brother. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, okay, I guess I, I guess it makes more sense that he wouldn't kill him. But I 100% thought that this ended in a murder. So John Cheever is considered one of the American masters of the short story. Sure. He mostly wrote in short story form and he mostly wrote about the suburban or the upper upper middle class experience. I think his most famous story is the swimming pool where, you know, everyone who they there's an episode where this boy goes swimming in all the people's swimming pools in the suburbs and that sort of a iconic work which is about the suburban experience and That's called the swimmer. The swimmer. Before yes. we get people correct, I guess. Yeah. But yeah. I've read that. That's a, that's a staple of literature courses is The Swimmer. I've read that one a couple times. Right. And I think Cheever's thing is he he thinks a lot of, lots about the sort of inner life and the outer life of what's projected. And, I can, and the conflict between being an individual and fitting into society. And I think this story really reflects that sort of conflict that he's trying to build. It's a story about a group of siblings. There's four siblings and their mother. And they, they're all married and they all have children and they're adults. And they come together once a year for two weeks at a vacation home in the Hamptons. And three of the siblings go every single year with their mother. And then the fourth sibling, who's almost like a black sheep who hasn't been around for a couple of years, shows back up unexpectedly to be at the family vacation home. But he doesn't show up unexpectedly. He announces that while he's between jobs, he's going to spend 10 days there with his family. And then they all decide to come at the same time and crash his vacation. I think, I I thought that there was only one vacation and it happened at that time. I think they all come once a year. But the narrator says that they decided specifically to come while Lawrence was going to be there. Right. So I think the thing is, is there there's... Two brothers and two sisters and the mother. And three brothers. Three brothers. There's a narrator, Lawrence, and Chatty. Chatty. Right. And then there's a sister. Then there's a sister. So they have been out of touch with their brother for many years. Her, his brother has purposefully chosen not to be involved in the family. So he has distanced himself from the family and decides that he wants to come back and visit with them for 10 days in the house. And... Nutty hijinks ensue, and they have a lot of problems dealing with the brother. And things come to a head where the narrator is on the beach with the brother, and in a very Cain and Abel way, he kindly finally snaps. He's had enough of the brother, and he picks up a rock and he hits the brother with the rock. It's a, it's a, root. it's a yes, it's, that's right. It's a, it's a limb. 
yeah. a wooden limb. So it's even more sort of biblical. He hits him with this kind of stick. Yeah, and it makes his head bleed, and he patches up his head, and then he goes back to the to the house. And then the brother shows back up, and understandably is like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I can't deal with you people anymore. My brother hit me in the head on the beach. Well, I think <laughs> what happens is that he comes back, and he's kind of superior... And the other three siblings immediately slide back into their sort of childhood roles. You know, there's the good, optimistic brother. There's the flaky kind of um, fun-loving sister. There's the serious but plotting narrator. And then he comes, and he is almost like an outsider. He looks inside, and he starts picking apart the family and judging the house and judging what they're doing and judging their... Um, fondness for this um, social life that they have at the yacht club. So I think it kind of brings sort of all these bad feelings about being a child and living in this society where people are valuing the external. I mean, the brother seems very sort of concerned about appearances. He's very concerned about how the house looks and if the house is falling apart. And he's very concerned about what kind of like attitude and what kind of show they put on when they're at this costume party. So this is, this is it. This is the moment. This is the, the, the good man is hard to find grandma moment where I go, actually, I like the character that you're supposed to hate because I found Lawrence to be deeply relatable as a person who is often called gloomy, but there's this style of story that has existed for a while that's a weird way to say a Let me start over. What I was gonna say. There's a style of story that you see over and over again in literature. And I think a lot a lot of stories that are pegged as being like some of the, the greatest and most important stories of all time deal with this. Where there are these portraits of these characters. Bartleby the Scrivener is another good example of this, where it's like, ooh, what's up with this person? They're so they're 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 dark and why would they make this decision? And they're uns- inscrutable and they stand apart from everyone. And then you look back on them with 2018 eyes and you go oh, he just has depression Lawrence is depressed and none of his family understands him or is willing to put up with him and his brother continually projects all of this malice and judgment onto him and grows to resent him rather than trying to help him and then it escalates to him hitting him in the head on the beach I think that's interesting because the narrator sees himself as in his role, in his view of himself, he is the person that has to be optimistic, that has to be cheerful, that has to smooth things along and keep the family together. Yeah, the narrator's like thesis is like, you know, if we all buck up and cheer up and try to get along, we're all going to have a better time no matter what. And he resents Lawrence, I think, because he sees Lawrence's attitude as being like a choice. Lawrence chooses to be this pessimistic and dark and gloomy and he looking at him now we under, like it's easy to understand like no he doesn't no one wants to be like that Lawrence isn't choosing to be like that he has no other choice and it like really it's crazy to, to read it now because it feels like a really accurate depiction of somebody with depression like you see that like Lawrence is isolated he doesn't enjoy a lot of things that the other people enjoy and he can't bring himself to and he's like tries to be around but he can't really and he wants to be alone I don't know. I didn't get that. But I didn't get that for a very specific reason. 
because I have siblings. And I have siblings and our family has a very set sort of roles that each of myself and my siblings play in our family. And I see that a lot in this story. They, They have this role that they're supposed to be playing and Lawrence rejects that sort of his role in this family. I feel like Lawrence is always, I don't know if he's depressed, but I know he is negative. And his role, from from what I understand from the story, is always to be that sort of counterpoint to the positive that's going on. So they're all enjoying a vacation and they're all having fun. And Lawrence is talking about how the house is going to fall into the sea. Sure. Or they're going to a party and they're having fun and they're having a cocktail party, a costume party. And Lawrence is there and he's brooding and he's at the beach. And then even when he's alone with his brother who just wants to play tennis with him, he immediately, his role is to be negative and he immediately takes on that role. So he's slotted back into his family role, which I think he had a problem with and that's why he distanced himself from the family. I mean, I think that's definitely true. There definitely is an element of, like, these family roles and being forced into them. And and as much as they want Lawrence to to participate or whatever, he... They they do do the work of forcing him back into that role of being, like, pessimistic and gloomy. And they continually call him by these childhood nicknames that he clearly hates and are awful. Tifty, The Croaker, and Little Jesus are terrible nicknames to give anyone, especially a child. Well, how about the mother says when she dies and comes back, she's going to have a family with good children. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> awful. Like, yeah, they're all bad. And Lawrence is not, like, great. I'm not saying, like, Lawrence is absolved. Lawrence is a jerk, and he doesn't try. And he, he does, like, it does seem like at points he kind of goes out of his way to sort of bring people down. But it's like... I don't know, so much of it that, like, that inability to think about anything except for the inevitable destruction. Like, we're on the beach house and it's pretty and nice and all you can think about is how it's going to slide into the sea. All you can think about when you see the nice cook is how she's being exploited and she doesn't even care. That going to the party and then not being able to, like, bring yourself to go inside the party and standing outside on the beach. Like, the narrator reads all of this, like, judgment into it, but I'm sure, but, like, being someone who's, like, been there and done all those things and struggled with those feelings like i'm sure that inside lawrence wants to be in the party he just can't and the narrator chooses to believe that he's choosing to do it and then attacks him for it i don't think he wants to i i never could understand why he wanted to come back to the family vacation that's the point that sort of confused me the whole time see it makes sense if he has depression because it's him he wants to go back because he wants to try and connect with his family and have a good time, and he just can't. But how about the wife is kind of like a non-existent character. She doesn't... She also... Her and the children also don't try. Yeah, but I think that that's where I'm like, Lawrence is a jerk. Because it feels like he's not a great husband or a great father and has kind of like fucked them up. But I, I really... I really identified with the pressure point that the narrator got to after being on the beach with his brother mm-hmm. where he just kind of like picks up that that log and he just pounds him on the head and he's kind of like I've had enough like I just don't I just like he with that like one strike he says like I've had enough of like family obligations and family roles and dealing with my negative brother and also dealing with this sort of 
kind of embracing of this like prodigal son like the narrator is there every year he deals with the mother he takes care it's the same thing Mm -hmm. and then here comes the brother who's been gone for so long and he immediately everyone's saying oh look he's back he's back and then after a short period of time they're like oh wait we thought he was a jerk and then they immediately get into their family roles where they're kind of like infighting and there's this sort of like friction going on and then finally the mother says she can't stand it anymore and it's kind of like this it's like a lot it's like a kind of like a just a quick short like really extreme version of what happens in like families all the time sure i i get why you would relate to the narrator i've never really been in that role which is why i was like i related so strongly to lawrence because i've been the dude standing on the outside of the family function or just like whatever the the social gathering and just being like no all i can think about is how there's going to be a hurricane it's going to destroy all this and no matter what i do that's all i'm going to be able to think about well i thought it was very telling at the one point when he comes in and he has the bandage and the blood on his head and his mother says what happened and his only response is my brother did this yeah like that's something like that's what a child would do like if somebody hit you and then you ran in the house crying to your mother and saying, this is what my brother did. Mm-hmm. It was it was interesting to see some of this stuff from like an outside perspective. Because like the whole sequence, there's this, this part where you talked about him being concerned with the appearance of the house. And there's this part where the narrator comes out and he sees Lawrence fucking around with one of the shingles. And Lawrence goes off on this tirade. I actually can't remember if Lawrence actually goes off on this tirade or if the narrator is just imagining this is what Lawrence is thinking. About the distressed door. But he goes off on this thing about how these they bought old shingles and they distressed the door. And this is stupid. And you're all obsessed with living in the past. And it's disgusting. And it's like, from the narrator's perspective, this is Lawrence being incredibly judgmental and moralistic and just being a dick. But I know that I've been in situations where it's like, I feel like shit. And I can't not feel like shit. So I'm just going to pick a fight. As a way to like, now this is a reason. Like I, now I'm now I'm mad for a reason and not for no reason, and I'm mad because you all suck in your phonies. I think that's exactly what this whole what's going on in this story. Because when they're having cocktails and Lawrence is there, and this is when they bring up the thing about all the terrible nicknames that they gave him. It's almost like their role in the family is to. Provoke him into having this negative reaction so that they can all say, oh, he's so negative, and we're so happy, and we're looking on the positive side. But I think what the narrator is actually doing is he's convincing himself or trying to convince himself that it's okay to be happy in the mundane, to not try to be anything more than just fitting into your role. And he even says that. He says, you know, I just want to have my vacation because I have to work so hard all this time and I just want to have my vacation. I just want to be happy with the small slice of life I have. And Lawrence shows up and he shows them all that they're kind of awful people and they're mediocre and they're not even trying to do anything to make their lives better. Yeah, but I I think Lawrence becomes a sink for the narrator's own negativity. Like the, the sequence that sticks out to me the most is the backgammon game. Do you remember? Right. So they're playing backgammon and Lawrence is just watching, and he's not saying anything, and he doesn't play, and he doesn't gamble. And the narrator starts trying to puzzle out what Lawrence is thinking. 
and constructs this elaborate scenario where Lawrence, where he decides that Lawrence has decided that these games are like this metaphorical, metaphysical conflict where like, you know, the narrator wins Chatty's wife's virtue and Chatty and the mother play for Chatty's soul. And he's like, at the end of that story, the narrator's like, how dare he think those awful things? And it's like, Lawrence isn't thinking those things. You're thinking those. But he's so, like, detaching himself so much from his negative feelings that he's offloaded them all onto Lawrence. Lawrence becomes his representation of all of the stuff he's not letting himself feel, which is, then I think, why he feels the need to lash out at Lawrence at the end. Well, he's not attacking Lawrence. He's attacking the Lawrence that exists within him. I think that... I think that's exactly it because the narrator sees himself as an upbeat, trying to be positive, trying to keep the family vacation to be fun, and he always wants to go swimming or play tennis or these different things. But I think without that sort of conflict, without that, like, his cane and his able, without them rubbing together with that friction, that... It's just a sort of bland family life. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's an interesting, it's sort of a comment on like the ugly side of like families and siblings and the roles that they play in each other's lives. And it was interesting because the first time I read this story, I read it at the same exact time where something was happening in my family that fit perfectly in the story. I had had a brother who had distanced himself from the family for many years. And when he came back to the family, everyone was very excited and very happy and he was welcomed. And no one ever questioned, like, why is he back? What is he doing? Why doesn't he have to apologize for his awful behavior? So I read this story as I'm reading the Pulitzer Prize or National Book Award list and it sort of really spoke to me it was like the perfect story read at the perfect point in my life and it spoke to me not that I wanted to bash my brother on the head with a limb but it's sort of this sort of family conflict kind of like spoke to me like about the roles that siblings play in each other's lives because no matter how old we are when we get together we immediately revert to the roles that we took as childhood. Sure, I, I understand to a certain extent. Obviously, I don't. I don't really have any siblings. I don't know if that surprises you um, that I don't have any siblings. <laughs> but like, you know, I'm very close with my cousins, and I was just mentioning this recently that like my younger cousin still bullies me in the exact same way he's bullied me for our entire lives. And like, I had a moment the last time we were like together, and he was doing. Uh, one of his standard bullying tactics, which is to uh, hold something in front of my face and tell me to eat it over and over again. And I was like, I had a moment afterwards where I was like, I'm 26. I'm 26. When is this? This is never going to stop. Like, I, I I, kept waiting for the moment when he would be like, cool, become cool. But it's like, no, we're going to be like 70. And he's still going to be like, I'll pay $5 to eat this handful of nickels. So you had a John Cheever moment. I was like, yeah, because it's like it all resets. No matter how mature either of us get when we're away, when it comes back, I'm still like 12 and he's still 11 and he's always going to be bigger than me. Well, I think I it's almost like a sibling type relationship. Yeah. 
But I think it was, what I thought was most interesting about it is how John Cheever sort of boiled it down to the very end, where the story ends with this sort of base act. Yeah. Like two brothers conflict, one gets hit, the other brother... They, they never really even resolve their disagreements and they never fully talk about what happened. He just gets up and leaves. And then the brother's like, well, I guess he didn't have a good time and he just left. Sure. <laughs> like, no one is ever accountable for their behavior. But I think for when you finish reading this and you say, whew, those people are awful, my family is not that awful. Mm-hmm. So I guess that we're doing better than most American families. Uh, this story really stressed me out because... All I could think was, like, thinking about Lawrence and the way the narrator sees him. And all I could think was, like, is this how people see me? Is this what's going on in people's heads? Which I don't think is the case. But it's, like, that, like, idea that, you know, you're acting some way just because, like, that's just how you feel. And you you can't help it. And people interpreting that as a choice and a judgment on them is, like, a serious anxiety. I think me and a lot of people have... That's what John Cheever wants you to do. He wants you, he wants to show you, one, the underbelly, the dark side of society and people's choices that they make. But he also wants to show you the duality of man, your inner perception of yourself and your projected perception of yourself. So I'm sure in Lawrence and the other siblings' minds, they're not as awful as they look Mm -hmm. to each other. Yeah, yeah. But what did you think? What did you think that both of these stories had in common? I mean, obviously, there's stuff, some stuff about like connection and family, and like that's all I said. And like I was gonna say a third thing, but I didn't have a third thing. There's also like the power of violence and the way violence sort of like the 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 way you can't really like take that back. Like once the narrator hits Lawrence in the head with the root, like that's it. Like their relationship is irrevocably changed, whether or not they talk about it later and the vacation is ended no matter how awful it might have been before in the same way where like you fire the gun and then the gun is fired and you can't you can't put the bullet back in the chamber and you can't put the root back on the beach yeah i think i thought the same thing i thought they sort of the violence was almost like cathartic Mm -hmm. you know once you shoot that gun you reset society once he hits that his brother with that limb then he resets the relationship sure but I thought it was interesting that the sort of both of them had to do with like family and the roles in society and about the human experience of interacting with other people and sort of making connections or not making connections, which whichever the case is. Do you huh? have anything else to add about both of those stories? Hmm. No, I don't. I don't think. Can't really think of anything at the moment. Um, rich people suck. That's the main thing I took away from Goodbye, My Brother, was that rich people suck. But it's also, like, I don't know. It's so funny to me, like, when the narrator's trying to, like, puzzle out all this stuff about Lawrence, and he's, like, he starts going on and on about, like, their ancestors who were, like, Puritan preachers who were eulogized by Cotton Mather, and he's, like, there's something in him that harkens back to those dark days of fire and brimstone. And it's, like, nah, he's just, he's just depressed, dude. He's just got depression. Stop. You don't need to. He's not. You can just chill out. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the fact that in the costume party, the brother goes in his football uniform. Sad. So sad. <laughs> and then it's like, that was one of the, I I actually really liked that sequence. That was some good shit from John Cheever where all of these people, because the, the premise of the party is like, come as you wish you were. And it's just full of people in their old 
high school sports uniforms and women in their wedding, bra- in their wedding dresses. And it's like, it's it turns you into Lawrence, or at least like for me, because it's like all all I can see in that scene is just heartbreaking sadness. And then Aaron doesn't really care. He thinks it's kind of funny. And it's like, oh, okay, that's what it's, so that's what that's like. That's what it's like to be that kind of person, because... <laughs> Boy, howdy, did this just bum me out. I do not blame Lawrence for being like, I can't, I cannot be in this room. <laughs> well, I think then that shows that John Cheever was successful in what he aimed to do with this. I mean, I like his short stories a lot, and I would recommend people continue to read more of his short stories because he, um, he sets the tone almost for modern realism, which comes along like either concurrently or a little bit later. So I think it's, okay. I mean, so if you want to read like Raymond Carver later on, he sort of takes a lot of the style of what John Cheever is doing. Mm-hmm. And manages to be even more of a bummer. Well, that's true. That's true. But then by the time it's the 80s, so everything, you're either highly on top of things or you're on the bottom. So Sure, sure. Do you want to tell everyone what we're reading next? Sure. Instead of doing, I know last episode I was like, from now on, we're doing two short stories every episode. Uh, we've got through two episodes before we decided to throw out our rules. Not permanently, but instead of reading two short stories for the next one, we're going to read volume one of The Sandman, published by, you know, DC Comics and Vertigo, uh, written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by a couple of people. I think most of the first volume is Sam Keith. I'll um, take your word for it. We're going to read that entire volume. I believe that covers the first eight issues of Sandman. And uh, we're going to talk about that. I think afterwards we'll go back to short stories and maybe alternate them with volumes of Sandman, provided next episode's discussion proves fruitful. And we might work our way through the whole series. I think it's... I don't think it cuts too far away from our theme because I, I feel like each of the issues in the volume are in itself a complete short story. There's definitely common ground between a single-issue comic story and a short story. It'll be an interesting conversation to discuss Neil Gaiman's writing with a visual component. And I feel like it fits sort of into between both of what we're interested in. I like Neil Gaiman, and I like his writing. You have an interest in comic books and graphic novels, and I think that intersection of sophisticated writing and quality illustration kind of puts the Sandman together and sort of sets the tone for a lot of like really important graphic work coming out. Sure, sure. Yeah, so so tune into the next episode and we'll discuss every goth's second favorite comic. Second favorite? Johnny the Homicidal Maniac is probably number one for them. Maybe they might flip. Depends on how much, how into the cure they are or how into like, uh, you know, grindcore they are. I think the Sandman fits in that sort of sweet spot where it appeals to Gen X and Millennials. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that common ground of like something, especially for us, that your mom likes and you like. You can put them together and it, it's kind of yeah. like a synergy that, that works. Sure, sure. So. All right, cool. Let's, uh, what have you been reading? Well, I have to tell you, I I did a public service for everyone out there. Actually, you know what? Let's we're gonna take a break. Then we're gonna come back and discuss you from reading. I will be back in a second. Okay, we're back. So this week I read "The President Is Missing" by James Patterson and Bill Clinton. 
or depending on how much a fan you are, Bill Clinton and James Patterson. It's a collaboration between Bill Clinton, the president, the former president, and James Patterson, the book writing machine robot that churns out billions of books a year. You might know Bill Clinton from the intro to Animaniacs, and you might know James Patterson from... He's in an episode of American Dad. Also, if you ever had jury duty, went to the beach, uh, took a long bus ride, or finished your book at the airport before you even got on your plane, you would probably have some contact with James Patterson. Yes. Yeah, yeah, probably. I have read one James Patterson book. I believe it was a young adult book that he wrote about teenagers with wings. It wasn't very good, and it kind of felt like he started writing it at the top corner, at the top left corner of the first page, wrote it all the way through to the bottom right corner of the last page, and never went back and read it. <laughs> I think James Patterson has a formula that he follows. I think there's a program that is written that somebody presses a button, and then James Patterson novel appears. Mm-hmm. He's just a neural net now? I think so. So this book is, it's a political thriller Mm -hmm. that was written by James Patterson with the input of Bill Clinton. So it has Bill Clinton's point of view as being a president, along with this sort of formulaic component of a James Patterson thriller. So there's very, there's a lot of similarities between the president in the story to Bill Clinton And also the president is a stand-in for middle-aged white American males. So this president is named Jonathan Lincoln Duncan. and Jonathan Lincoln Duncan? Yes. And, you know, because Bill Clinton is William Jefferson Clinton. So he has a presidential middle name, and so does this president. Wait, what? Say it again? It's... Jonathan Lincoln Duncan. It's Jonathan. So he didn't... So he goes by John. In John. The story. Like like Bill. Like Bill. He is a southerner and he has one child. But my favorite component is is that this president's wife is dead. Okay. Can She's I just... not pestering the you know, him as he's being the president and allowing him to do whatever adventures he wants to mm-hmm. do. She's also not out there losing an election to an incompetent orange fascist. Um, can I just say that John Lincoln is the worst Name for a fictional president? That's like a placeholder name. Uh, what's the president's name? Uh, John Lincoln. D- Doug Washington. Wait, you say he goes by John Lincoln or John Duncan? He goes by John Duncan. John Duncan is better. John Duncan's better than John Lincoln. So he's the president of the United States. He's also an ex-army ranger who was a mm-hmm. war hero in Desert Storm he is a very charismatic southern man and he gets involved in this sort of cyber attack slash terrorist plot that he as the president of the united states has to take care of okay i read the kindle sample of this just to get a feel for it there's an important detail you're leaving out which is he's not just an ex-army ranger he's also like an ex Major League Baseball pitcher? No, Minor League Baseball pitcher? Yes, yes. But I said when I got this book from the library, if there was not a saxophone scene in it, I will stop reading the book. Spoiler alert, no saxophone. 
Did they re- not play? It does. Is the baseball playing a stand-in for? Yes, the there is a, a pivotal plot point that takes place at the Nationals game. Oh God! So, and the president goes undercover. He leaves the White House to go undercover to crack this cyber terrorist plot that is affecting the United States. What? And this is where James Patterson starts to sort of. This is where this plot kind of falls apart because you realize two things as you're reading this. One, Bill Clinton was the president before it was a major issue of cyber terrorism and before the component of social media played into the role of the presidency. Both of these are reflected in the in the story. They and James Patterson really doesn't know anything about like how humans act. So he doesn't understand how the real world works. So you have a president that's supposedly a middle-aged white man who's going to stop the cyber terrorism. But he really doesn't understand computers, social media, cyber terrorism, regular terrorism, or even how to drive a car. So so the president has all these problems okay. because he sort of distanced himself from, like, real life. That should have been the title of the book. Should have been The President Has Problems. <laughs> but I feel like it sort of reflects the sort of middle-aged man, like, fear and simultaneous love of technology because a lot of it has to deal with there's this virus that this terrorist is going to release that's going to send America back to the it's called codename dark ages and it's going to send them back to the dark ages but what it what it's specifically going to do and don't look so incredulous it's it's a virus that's going to affect smart devices and then we're going to be sent back to a time what? where we had no smart devices. That's not the Dark Ages. That's that's not the Dark Ages. That's like 95. That's well, like when Bill Clinton was... Pro- okay. This is the same plot as the most recent Dan Brown book, isn't it? I think it's very similar. And I think it's sort of... It's sort of... All James Patterson novels have this element of like fear-mongering. It's like, what are people who like my books afraid of? They're afraid of terrorists. They're afraid of foreigners. They're afraid of like the internet being hacked. There's this sort of this whole sort of you know AARP fear of like being hacked or having your devices hacked, and then but simultaneously being like I can't live without my iPad. So there's that kind of like fear mongering, and there's always that component of the the person who is the star of the story, which is the president is the smartest person in the world. He's the only one. So there's a scene where there's this most sophisticated virus that is going to be released, you know, into the, into society and it's going to cripple the internet. And he has the team of the most elaborate and most successful hackers from all over the world, from Germany, from Israel, from Russia, all these people. None of them can hack this virus or solve the problem except for the president who doesn't understand how technology works. Well, how does he... So he's the smartest person in the room because he's a white, middle-class man who knows how to figure it is out. Is it like a thing like, oh, all these hackers can't see the forest for the trees? And, and at he one uses point, his down-home he, wisdom to cut through the bullshit? At one point, he actually says that. God, God damn it. I so. should be making so much more money. Okay, so a couple of things. Why are they releasing the virus to destroy all this? What is the motivation of the villain? That's the twist. I don't want to give too many spoiler alerts, but I feel like if you're if you're going to read this book, you're going to read this book. Sure. And you already know what you're getting because you know it's a James Patterson. So there's really no twist. 
The twist is the same twist that it always is. This terrorist wants to cripple America and turn us into the world's largest third world country, which is another quote directly from the book. (laughs) You don't know. He sets up a lot of scenarios of who it could be. Could it be the Russians? Could it be the Saudis? Could it be... Can I make a guess? Yeah. Is it the vice president? The vice president is a female. Okay. And there, there's the female vice president, there's a female chief of staff, and there's a female assassin who is also on the hunt. There's that subplot where there's an assassin. So it kind of, like, so you don't know if, which one of these, like, countries, like, in a Jack Reacher story that you're supposed to hate <laughs> is, the, is the reasoning why this terrorist is doing that. And then you have this component where... The president is also trying, in an almost like a detective story, suss out who the traitor in his cabinet is. Okay. So he has these sort of he has to figure out all these different plot points, and he's the only one. And then interfiled in there is there's a couple um, shootout scenes at the national, and then there's a they go to a cabin, and there's a boat scene, and their helicopter fight. I mean, there's a lot of things going on here. So I can't tell if like James Patterson wanted these action bits or if Bill Clinton wanted them. See, my theory on this book is that a version of this has been, like, in Clinton's mind or and or notebook since he was the president. And what it started off as, what if I was still the president but also James Bond? And then evolved into I whatever this is, which sounds to me like, what if I was the president but also Jack Bauer? Yeah, I think so. And like in my mind when I was reading it, I thought to myself, like, how did they write this book? Like, in my mind I picture like Bill Clinton like going to the presidential library and reading like a hundred books on like cyber terrorism and the Middle East and you know, talking to his staff and trying to get like this feel of how social media works and you know, he gets on Twitter and maybe like Hillary has a talking to with him and trying to explain things how it goes. No. And then James Patterson, like, he watches, like, 100 hours of, like, Homeland and, like, History Channel, but only the daytime sure. programming, not that. And then, like, maybe, like, Google's, like, how to drive a car or looks on Wikipedia. Like, that's the amount of research they do because they really don't have, like, any sort of understanding of, like, the infrastructure of the internet. See, my thing, what I'm imagining is that Bill Clinton ate a Big Mac and read half of that Dan Brown book I brought up earlier, and James Patterson has just, like, seen some episodes of Homeland and 24, and, like, maybe had a conversation with Tom Clancy while he was still alive, and then they wrote this book together. Also, other question I have is, do you think if Tom Clancy was still alive, he would have co-written this instead of James Patterson? I don't think so, because Tom Clancy actually did research. He understood things. Yeah. It's very clear that the parts that Bill Clinton might have influenced are the sort of administrative parts of, like, the president. Like, he knows a lot about how the cabinet works and, you know, how to escape from the White House, which is another thing that he does. That was a thing, right? He would sneak out of the, he would actually sneak out of the White House. Yeah. The White House when he was president. Yeah, and I think it gives this sort of... There's a couple parts of this story where he gives this sort of preachy kind of like monologue. And, and one of them is very clearly like anti-Trump and kind of blames a lot of like the, uh, you know, the lack of civility in the government on like social media. 
which I think is a thing so that like old. he's so old that is like relevant to Bill Clinton. One, he didn't really have to deal with that during his. He would have been. It would have been bad. Right, but then I think he also sees it from the perspective of what happened to Hillary Clinton. And then there's the parts that are sort of written like an action movie. Like there's a jet ski. You know, there's, there's com- a jet ski? Well, it's not like, a, it's like a, it's an underwater like vehicle that the assassin uses to, to swim oh. underneath the Secret Service boats. There's and not there, like a Baywatch jet ski chase. No, but there is a boat chase where... You know, these assassins, which may or may not be from, like, some kind of, like, uh, Croatian type of country. He doesn't even name them. Okay, Where they're on a lake, and they're kind of pretending to be fishermen, and then they rip off their fisherman gear, and they start getting, like, AK-47s or whatever, and shooting people, and the Secret Service have a shootout. And then there's this rather, like, technically specific like dialogue about this special helicopter that the president is calling to come and save them from this shootout at this lake scene where where he like James Patterson goes in elaborate detail about noise canceling like technology okay there's a black tent where hackers can't get in there and he has a conversation with the german chancellor and Mossad helps him crack part of the... So there's this kind of like the synergy with a lot of international moving parts that I think like James Patterson might not know about, but Bill Clinton could know about. Okay, a couple questions I have. You mentioned that there's a couple of like self-righteous speeches, right? How West Wingy is this thing? I, a lot. And there's a... In fact, at the end where... He, oh, another component, which is a very important component, which I should have kind of started with, is the president is in the middle of being impeached. So he's at this point where the Speaker okay. of the House, Lester Rhodes, is making all these side deals to get the president impeached, and he's working with the vice president. Mm-hmm. So there's all this... Poot Gingrich. Yeah. Poot, poot. <laughs> but it's like... The book is 500 pages long. There's like 300 chapters. You know, like James Patterson never writes a chapter that's more than five pages. Like his audience would not deal with anything that's longer than five pages long. So it's very action-packed. And I feel like the kind of, the way that women are depicted in this story is kind of conflicted. Like there's a woman who's an assassin and there's a woman hacker. And then some of the women in his cabinet are... um, may or may not be traitors. And so there's this kind of like conflicted view of like how women are portrayed, which I think happens a lot in James Patterson novels. He has a lot of strong female characters. Does but they're he? Well, he does, but they're almost written like men. Oh, okay. And like the weakness with the lady assassin is that when she gets captured, it turns out she's pregnant. So she can't fight her way out because she chooses to save her baby over taking out the the target that she was hired to take out. What? What? Okay, that's really weird. Yes, and the female hacker, she leaves the terrorist collective where she made this virus and because she fell in love with another hacker. Okay, sure. But I, some of the elements were so sort of fantastical. Like the Russian hacker collective is called the Fancy Bear. And that's a real thing, though. That was that fancy bear is like one of the code names for like a Russian intelligence thing in okay. real life. Okay, so yeah. that I thought that was kind of ridiculous. But no, I, no, that's that's legit. That's actually my favorite part in the book is when it's revealed at the end that 
spoiler alert, if you don't want to know what happened, then you might want to turn it off. But it turns out that all of these rogue nations had joined together to create this virus. Oh, it's a Red Dawn situation. Yes. At one point, he's talking to the Russian prime minister or the Russian representative in the United States. And he says, tell your president to stay out of our elections. And like that's his sort of, and then he hangs up on the Russians and oh. after he's... And then at the end, he like there's this long speech about bipartisan and trying to work together. And if the Republic- rolling my eyes so hard, <laughs> the Republicans and the Democrats could have worked together, the president would not have had to stop this hacker attack on his own. I I I, I just I rolled my eyes hard. It popped out of my fucking skull. <laughs> I can't. I can't even. Of course, of course, it has that in it. My other major question, and the thing that I've been maybe the most curious about is. Uh, how horny is it? There's no, there's no... Really? Yes. Do you... James Patterson had, must have edited a ton of stuff out then. I, I think it might have actually been Bill Clinton. You think? Yes. Cause I because I would have always... thought that Bill Clinton would have had his, had President Duncan be like a real ladies man, especially if his wife is dead in the story. I assumed when you said that, I was like, okay, that's so he can, so he can bone down. There's no, there's, yeah, you don't even get that like sex scene. You don't get that. No. It's I, totally PG rated. A little bit disappointed in Bill Clinton. It's a 100% a white male stroke story. I mean, you couldn't get any more if you would have, like, I don't know. But, like, so, like, a more serious ish thing. You touched on this idea, which is also the thing we talked about. I referenced that Dan, what is it, Inferno? The Dan Brown story yes. with, the, with the computer virus. When you told me about when you read that and you were telling me about it, you brought up this thing about the like middle aged man's fear and fixation on technology, which now that you're talking about this seems to be a real sort of running motif in these sort of pot boiler type novels, which I guess for the most part now are being written by guys who are that age. I think there's something really interesting in there because you're absolutely right. They they are like like they're all like angry about tech and also they want it like your husband my stepfather had you know he's got to have the the newest smartphone and then he doesn't install any apps on it right and i think that's exactly what's going on here it's that so and might even not even be middle age it might actually be more like the baby boomers because it's clear that james patterson and possibly bill clinton don't really understand how the internet of things work they don't know how these smart devices interact. And it kind of like the plot point of when the president solves the mystery, he's like, why don't we just shut off all of our devices? Which comes up again in a different James Patterson, the, story, the, the book Zoo that the TV series is based on. They realize that the reason why these animals are turning against humans is because they're so mad about the technology and what it does to the environment. And what? the plot point hinges on the scientists saying, if everybody turns off their smartphones for 30 days, nature will reset itself and they won't be angry and attacking us. What? But all the people in the society say, no, we can't. We cannot live without our cell phones for 30 days. And they turn them back on and the animals attack them. So it's kind of like this, like a recurring theme in James Patterson is this fear of technology and its effect on people. Okay. So... We've talked. We in the previous episode, we talked because we were doing a story about D and D. We touched on the fact that I play tabletop role playing games with my friends. I'm a big fan of them, 
and I was working on a scenario to run for my friends this week. And I was going to do a call of, use the Call of Cthulhu game rules to run a haunted house scenario for them. And the premise was that classic haunted house thing where the rich relative dies and you have to spend a weekend in his house before you can get your inheritance. And I wrote in like a bunch of jokes where the old man that died is angry about technology and millennials. And that was my way of getting around the what if you had cell phones thing was that he makes them give up their cell phones because he wants to see if they can go a weekend without their ding dang smartphones, you dang millennials. And I was like really playing it up to be ridiculous. And now I'm like, I don't even think you can parody these guys. He actually wrote that like and made it even more bigger and more ridiculous. Well, at one point... When the hackers, and I don't know anything about hacking or the whole hacking collective, but at one point when these top-notch hackers, even one of them was a black hat hacker who has been reformed and now works for the government, they have they spend 500 computers. They ruin 500 computers trying to break this code. They use up all the computers you sent them. So, and he just, and the president keeps saying, Bring in more computers. <laughs> more keyboards. I'm on more keyboards at once. And then there's a scene where I and I I made a screenshot for Nate just to show him. There's a the whole plot of who the trader pivots on this second smartphone that for some reason takes two days to hack into. The government can't hack into it for two days. And then when they do, there's a series of, of texts that tell them lead him to not tell him who the traitor is, but give him the information to figure it out himself. And in this actual volume where they're reproducing the the text messages, he has pictures that are supposed to be emojis. But they're not even emojis. They're just clip art. They're not the actual emojis that you see. So it's not even like a reproduction of what your phone looks like. But it has... The way that it's written out makes it easy for people to read. It's not even written like text messages. This is like, you know sometimes when you like eat something and it's so sweet it hurts your mouth? This is like the experience I'm having with this. It's like too beautiful for me to look at directly. (laughs) It's hurting my brain thinking about the clip art. Like, I looked at that picture. We'll put it on the Twitter. But I looked at that picture with the clip art and like I couldn't process it. It It was so much baby boomer. That my like brain shut down. Well, to show you how severe the effect of this virus that's going to be released on the United States, codenamed Dark Ages, God. there's five pieces of clip art that are fires in a row. Oh no, five fires. Shit's going to be lit, fam. So, I mean, watch out. I can't. Is there, is there anything else left to say? Okay, well, actually, here's a question. Um, does the president go missing? Because that doesn't seem to be... I thought that was the plot of the book, was that the president was missing and they had to find him because the book is called The President is Missing? No one is actually looking for the president. He is indeed missing, but he's only missing because he is out there on your behalf, saving your country. Even though he is currently dying of a mysterious blood ailment that makes him very weak. Okay, uh, I don't even know how to respond to the blood ailment thing. <laughs> Bill Clinton wrote a book where the president sneaks out of the White House to go to a Nationals game, but it's actually, actually it's because he's protecting America, and you <laughs> shouldn't be mad at him. He, he, was at that, he wasn't at that Nationals game to enjoy a baseball game and a beer. He was saving you. 
He was at the Nationals game also with a known terrorist who was also understanding the baseball game and having a good time. But it's like, it's like you got caught, it's like you didn't clean your room, and so in response you gave your mom a novel where (laughs) you had to keep your room messy because it was the only way to send a message to the aliens to keep them from blowing up the earth. That, I mean, that could be the next James Patterson plot point. I don't know. But it was quite um, bombastic. Sure. And um, it was a very interesting, quick read. Very action I learned a lot about the president and cyber terrorism. And there's a scene where the hackers have a party and they get really drunk. Mm-hmm. That's like the fun interlude, I guess. Does the president go to the hacker party? No, no. These are these are the bad hackers. Oh, these are the bad hackers. Not the not good. A- the good hackers. They just continue to keep working on their phones. They just keep destroying computers. Yes, yes. And telling the president that's helping somehow because they're just trying to get some paid. Yes, but the whole he figures out who the traitor is by tricking them. Because like a Columbo a, thing? Yes, there's like a countdown to when the virus is going to be launched. <laughs> and they have a chance to put in a keyword. And then he tells them in this sort of six-way conference call using multiple computer monitors to all start yelling out what they think the password is. He knows what the password is because he cracked the mystery before that. So whoever tells him who what the code word is, he knows is the, te- is the person working with the Okay, so it is 100% just a Columbo thing. Yes. He, the President Columbo's the cyber terrorist. I can't get over this. I can't believe that. I, I guess I should. And I the whole time. should believe that this As exists. he's solving this mystery and saving the world from cyber terrorism, the Republican Speaker of the House is chewing him out on television and riding his butt. And despite that, he still solves the mystery. And then at the end, even though he could say, like, in your face, Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. he decides to be diplomatic and bipartisan and forgive everybody who obstructed him in solving this. So this book is, it's him, it's partly a passive-aggressive slam against Newt Gingrich. And then it's partly him, like, writing fan fiction about himself so no one can be mad at him for slacking off from his job. Like 20 years ago. And then, yes. And it also has a very heartwarming dedication, which says, to my wife, comma, Hillary Clinton, period. Very heartwarming. Okay, this is my last question. Um, which if which president and uh, trashy paperback writer combo would you like to see next? Well, that's interesting, because that's the exact same question that I was going to ask you. Oh, Interesting. Um, I think I would like to see, hmm, well, who is alive? It's the Bushes, Jimmy Carter, and Bill Clinton, and Obama, right? That's it, right? Yes. Um, okay. This isn't, he's not a president, per se, but he was a vice president. And I want to see Al Gore write a book with, hmm... Well, Tom Clancy's dead. See, that would be my... Because I want the Al Gore cyber thriller about how he invented the internet. (laughs) (laughs) No, he went... Oh, no, he's dead too. Because I was going to say Michael Crichton would be a good one. And then they could fight about whether or not global warming exists. Hmm. No, you know what? I I want Jimmy Carter and Stephen King to team up and write a horror story about a giant rabbit. 
See, I was mm-hmm. going to also pick Jimmy Carter, but I was going to go a different way. I was going to go a sensitive, sexy Jimmy Carter and ask him to write a book with the lady from Twilight. Hmm, that's interesting. You know, like a young adult fantasy novel. You know, some, something supernatural. Yeah. No, I, I, I really want to deal with the fact that Jimmy Carter was attacked by a giant rabbit and also saw a UFO. I think those would be the most... Those, that's what I want to hear. I would also think it would be interesting if George Bush, the elder, teamed up with a, like Larry McMurtry and wrote like a Lonesome Dove kind of story. I'm genuinely surprised <laughs> that George W. Bush has not written like a book like this, like a thriller where he the president is the hero. Because that was like kind of a big... You know, he was the president that walked around in that fucking flight suit and hung out on the battleship. Like, it seemed like all, he desperately wanted to be, like, a superhero. I'm surprised that he hasn't done that yet. But I guess he's too busy painting and saying shit like, Trump makes me look good. That just makes me disgusted every time I see it on the fucking internet. Well, I think this sort of sets the precedent for a lot of, like, celebrity combos you know co-writing opportunities that other celebrities could get involved in sure how does it stack up to other celebrity authored books you've read well i'm kind of working on a thesis in my mind about celebrity novels so i have a couple that i've been reading and i kind of had this i think people always say oh you know it's really awful when like actors make you know make records or if they produce like books but i think like a lot of creative people are creative in multiple formats so some of them are better than others sure there's uh like nobody gets on like neil gaiman's back for writing comic books and novels and tv screenplays but they get like on celebrities backs for writing novels sure i definitely think there's some of them um you know, Wolf and the White Man, which is a John Darnell, the dude from the Mountain Goats book, is really good. And so is, uh, I also really enjoyed, I think it's called I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive or something like that. It's a Steve Earle's novel. I also thought it was pretty enjoyable. It's about the doctor who gave Hank Williams the shot of morphine that killed him being haunted by his ghost. Yeah, see, I think, like, I mean, some of them are are interesting. What what tier is this? Is this better? Is this worse than the um, Gillian Anderson sci-fi novels? I think it's a whole different animal. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's really no way to like... You know what's surprisingly good, speaking about celebrities writing stuff? I mean, not that he's not also a writer, but uh, Anthony Bourdain's comic, Get Jiro, is really good. It's like an action crime story about a sushi chef. Yeah, see, I think if you if you do it in a way that's like kind of closely related to your interests, mm-hmm. then I think you could be successful at it. I think this is just anomaly that's just sort of a weird. It's very strange. It's very strange that it's happening now too. Yeah, but I guess that's like this is when you know if there's going to be any time where Bill Clinton's going to look good in comparison, it'll probably be while Trump is president. I think so. And I think it's like now there's enough time has passed to look back on Bill Clinton with sort of a fond eye. I have a Mm. fondness for Bill Clinton because he was the first president that I voted for. Sure. But also, Bill Clinton did a lot of shitty stuff. Cough, cough, welfare reform. Cough, cough. 
that I think we we should be looking back on a little more critically than we were to sort of trace how that's led to a lot of the situation we're in currently. But I think the same thing with George Bush, where Bill Clinton can say, I'm not Donald Trump. So, but that's, you know, the book is itself kind of like weird and funny and kind of like a fun read. I mean, it's definitely like a beach read or you read it when you're at jury duty. You're, but I think the thing with James Patterson is he's so prolific mm-hmm. and he's such a sort of an industry for creating books that he saturates the market with all these bestsellers because he follows a formula that's almost like a TV show. Sure. Like you watch CSI because you want to be entertained, not because you're, you want to learn about forensic science. And it's the same thing with James Patterson. I mean, I'm sort of ambivalent about him. He exists, and that's fine. There's other authors that I find more reprehensible than James Patterson. And if I find a James Patterson book on, you know, in some way and I have nothing to read, I will read it. You know, he, he gets people reading, which is good. And he gets people talking about books, which is good. It's kind of like when your kid is little and you say, let them read whatever they want. At least they're reading. It's the same thing. Sure. I, I, don't, beg- I don't begrudge him that. I just don't think he's a very good writer. Well, he's. I wouldn't put him in the pantheon of American writers. You but know? I don't even think he's that good, like, he knows. in the pantheon of, like, pulp-type writers like that. I mean, I don't know if that's the right term to call these guys. But I think of them as being the equivalent of pulp writers. I think he knows his limitations. Sure. He knows he's not going to win a Pulitzer Prize. He knows he's not getting a National Book Award. But, I mean, is he going to sell a lot of books? Yes. Yeah, okay. He's got so many series. I mean, there's... Let's inevitable that you're going to come across a James Patterson book at some place and you're going to read it. Whether it be like at the thrift shop for 25 cents or, you know, your grandma's house and you have nothing else to do. Yes, that is the context in which I... No, no. I think I found the one that I read. Like, I literally like, found it on the bus. Uh, whatever. You're going you're gonna to have jury duty one day and you're going to need something to read. I got plenty of stuff to read when I have jury duty. Don't you worry. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to read something trashy, it's going to be something trashy that has a spaceship on the cover. You got anything else to talk about? Um, you read any more books by presidents? Um, no. Right now I'm reading The Fountains of Paradise, which I mentioned by Arthur C. Clarke, mm-hmm. which I'm really enjoying. I'm, I'm just at the point now where they're starting to talk about this elevator, which kind of makes me think about the whole like Elon Musk situation where he's going to build this elevator to the stars. Sure. So. Sure. He'll be, yeah. No, he'll build lots of stuff, I'm sure. <laughs> I don't like Elon Musk. And I do have a, a weird correction to to give. Uh, last time when we were t- when we were talking about Arthur C. Clarke and the kind of like white washing and dude washing of the history of science fiction, I said that Andre Norton wrote a book called Spaceman's Son. It is actually called Starman's Son. So if anybody tries to find that and they can't, that's because Spaceman's Son is not a book that exists. Is it about the Star Lord? It is not. If I'm remembering correctly, it's like, I think it's set in like a post-apocalyptic Earth and the protagonist is like, I have no, I don't, I've read it and I don't remember it. I'm pretty sure it's set in the post-apocalypse and that's all I can give you. Um, I did want to give a recommendation for a short story collection, um, sort of inspired by John Cheever. And I mentioned this almost a little bit, the Raymond Carver, um, 
his most popular short story collection, which is called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. It's from 1981, but it's still in print, so you'll be able to find a copy. And Carver's kind of well-known for, like, the 1980s revival of the art of short stories. He's the one who starts to bring the short story back where people start talking about the New York Times, the different short stories that are published in literary magazines. He's an American modernist, but he's also considered a minimalist, so he kind of has a style that's similar to Faulkner and Steinbeck. He talks about um, people's relationships and society and how people feel about interacting with each other, which I guess is a very 80s kind of aesthetic. Yes. He also had, I guess there's this trend to sort of break modern writing into all these different subgenres. So one of the genres that they're trying to fit him into is something called dirty realism, which is kind of like, um, it's modernist and it's realism, but it's kind of got this edgy kind of fit to it. I don't know if he really fits mm-hmm. into that, and I don't really know if that should be a thing. What is, would be another example of that? I don't know. I really couldn't find anything that kind of really was like anything that's well known enough to be that. And I feel like if you're a realist, then you're already kind of gritty and dirty and and kind of. Okay, so the the thing that I'm getting from the Wikipedia is that um, Bill it was coined by Bill Buford. Uh, of Granta magazine to defend the North American literary movement. And he said, Dirty Realism is the fiction of a new generation of American authors. He said this in 1983, just to give some context to that. They write about the belly side of contemporary life, a deserted husband, an unwed mother, a car thief, a pickpocket, a drug addict. But they write about it with a disturbing detachment at times verging on comedy. Understated, ironic, sometimes savage, but incessantly compassionate. These stories constitute a new voice in fiction. And some of the examples they give are Raymond Carter, Raymond Carver, Tobias Wolf, Richard Ford, Larry Brown, Frederick Barthelm, Cormac McCarthy, which is the person I thought of immediately reading that description, uh, and a bunch of others that I don't. Carson McCullers, those kind yeah, of people. Yeah, I kind of feel like it almost is like realism with like an element of the Gothic, maybe. I don't know. I don't see. A, I don't see the need for something called a dirty realist when you're actually when realism is itself like kind of gritty and like showing like what life is like um i found a much better term for this in the see also section of this wikipedia article which is what i would have called it which is kmart realism (laughs) a literary genre characterized by sparse tense a sparse tense style that features struggling working class characters in sterile bleak environments i mean that's not exactly the same thing because i think a lot of those dirty realist authors I wrote, do talk, do deal with some more upper class, upper middle class writers. Like Tobias Wolf writes a fair amount of stuff about like people in like boarding school and shit like that, if I'm remembering his work correctly. Yeah, and I think like when I think of like Raymond Carver, I think sort of like, um, I think of like bar flies and like down on your luck and daytime hotels and things like that. I really like the term Kmart realism. And I have decided that I need to write... I'm going to trailblaze a new literary genre, which is Kmart Magical Realism. <laughs> I'm pretty... Well, I'm pretty sure I've already written a bunch of stuff that just hasn't been published yet that absolutely could be uh, 
labeled as Kmart magical realism. Yeah. But that's the new, that's the new hotness. Everybody get on that. Start writing, you know, start writing your magical realist stories where everybody works at the Arby's. Well, I think that kind of becomes that's that almost becomes the trend in modern writing, American writing, that sort of uh, middle class. Well, aesthetic. I definitely we're going to see that. I think you can kind of trace, you know, in American writing, the rise of of the precursor to this dirty realism. I think mirrors the rise of the middle class, and you can see that in like the John Cheever stuff. And now I think as the middle class dies out and the gulf between the rich and the poor. Uh, widens we're gonna see less and less literature dealing with that and more and more serious literature dealing with these people who live near or at poverty which is good because i already complained about how much serious literature is about you know unrelatably rich people even like reading goodbye my brother it's like yeah I, i could relate to a lot of the family stuff and lawrence's struggle with depression and fitting into this role but also it's like they have like a summer home in the Hamptons, like that's yeah. so alien to my experience. Well, I started to think about Raymond Carver because when we were talking last time, you talked about how when people depict the lower middle class or the poor strata of society, that it's dismal. Yes, dismal is a good word. And I think like Raymond Carver, he sort of writes about it, but there's this sort of very fine glimmer of like. Maybe there's some hope, or maybe these people will be okay. And I think that's a sort of... He's writing about that strata of people and their relationships, but it is not in a condescending or negative way. This story, the main story in the novel, is the is one of the plot points in Birdman, which I think got a lot of people thinking about Raymond Carver when that came out. Because they're putting on the play... That's an adaptation of this short story. And the star or the main character in Birdman is kind of obsessed with Raymond Carver. But yeah, that's a good wreck. Read yeah. some Raymond Carver. I do think his work's kind of a bummer, but I don't think it's as like crushingly bleak as a lot of stuff. I think his, his stuff's a bummer, but I, he handles the characters with like a level of humanity. And I think a lot of stuff that takes a similar tone and approach doesn't and is what makes that stuff feel so much more... Hopeless. I always felt when I read Raymond Carver that it was almost like a story that's based in a world that Tom Waits created. Oh yeah, it's very Tom Waits. I, I totally see that. Um, should I give a recommendation for something? Yeah, do you have something? Sure. It's not. Uh, I'm going to take like a almost entirely opposite tact. One, it's not a collection of short stories. It's a novel. Uh, but it's Kraken by China Mieville. I read that earlier this year. It's this sort of brawling, weird, grungy, urban fantasy story about, like, the magical and mystical underbelly of London, but in a much, in a way that's similar to something like Neverwhere, but is a little more, a little more working class. There's a union of familiars that are on strike. There's all of these warring, uh, secret religions. It's a, like, it's a really nice, like... China Melville writes about cities a lot, which is a thing that I like about him. He has, a very, he has a very urban take on science fiction and fantasy. But this is one of his few stories that's set in a real city. And it's a really compelling portrait of London filtered through this lens of kind of um, 
you know, like urban fantasy, but not in the way that you tend to think about urban fantasy, which is like, you know, a detective story with a werewolf in it. This is more in like, there are fantastical things happening in an urban setting. I always think of, when I think of urban fantasy, I always think of Jim Butcher and the Dresden Files. Is this similar to that? Would that appeal to people who are fans of Harry Dresden? Sure. It's a little bit weirder. A little, Like I said, a little bit grosser. The plot revolves around the preserved giant squid in the Natural History Museum going missing. And the hero is the guy who was in charge of preserving it. Um, but I think if you dug Harry Dresden, you might enjoy this. It's a little bit... Like I said, like I said, it's, it's a, a little bit weirder, maybe a little bit more philosophical, but uh, I highly recommend it. It's a good read, and it's very funny. That's good. That's a good recommendation. I would read that. Yeah. If I wasn't reading James Patterson all the time. No, no. You got to set aside some time for, for my boy China because his books are usually pretty fucking long. Yeah. And his writing is very flowery. I can see why that would appeal to you. But if you're but if you're looking for a, a urban fantasy story written by a communist, you really can't do much better. My next <laughs> comment was, "What is his stance on socialism and or Marxism?" Oh no, he's he's I believe he is a Trotskyite, so you'll probably like him. <laughs> he's like a Gen X punk communist. There's like a bunch of pictures of him with like a leather jacket and a hammer and sickle shirt under it. He does, has like an earring. Does he have his Doc Martens on? I believe so. Usually, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of him where you could see his feet where he wasn't wearing Doc Martens. Does he worship William Gibson? Mm, I don't know. I, I I don't. He's he's more on the Clive Barker end of things. Okay. But but yeah, I I think I think you'd enjoy it if you gave it a shot. But yeah, like I said, there's a whole subplot in it where the, all the fami- the magical familiars in the city are going on strike and they're like union leader is one of those servant statues that they would bury with the pharaohs oh okay who's like gained sentience and rebelled and he led an uprising in the afterlife and now he's unionized all the familiars in the you know living world is it's very good it sounds great and i would recommend all of his other stuff too you know they're making the show out of the city in the city that's probably my favorite thing he's written but yeah I'm gonna have to track down. I don't. I don't know if I've read a ton of his short stuff, but if I can find one or two, I'm, I'll bring it for us to read. I definitely want to bring more new weird stuff in the future. This Flower Mercy Needle Chain is like a little. I think a little bit new weird ish, like more in the kind of the grandness and strangeness of its sci-fi ideas. This this like the attitude it takes towards like time and probability and universes but not so much in like the tone and style of the writing you know nobody's there's no weird stuff with bodies which is a big trait hallmark of the new weird yeah i kind of felt that the story lee's story was almost more of a like a surrealist story maybe more inspired by borgia kind of thing oh absolutely sci-fi slant it's very sophisticated and i think that it kind of shows in the it's a short story it's very short but it's compressed and there's a lot to unpack in the story which kind of makes me think more surrealist than anything else I guess like it's it's definitely a more clear narrative than I think a lot of surrealist stuff that I've read it's also not as horny as all the surrealist stuff I've read that's an underrated element of surrealism is that all these dudes were mega horny 
Um, but I definitely get what you're saying. I think the comparison to Borges is accurate. Especially that, like, intro to this story where it talks about, like, everything mm-hmm. moves to this one point. If you're of a grammatical bent, you would call it punctuation. Like, that. that's very yes. Borges. Yes. All right. Uh, do we have anything else to talk about or nope. are we done here? I think that's it. All right. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Check out Sandman. Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes for our next episode. Cue up your David Bowie, your cure, anything else that you need to get ready yeah. to read the Sandman. Does, do you remember, does Lucifer show up in the first volume? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember either. I just reread the first issue, which we'll talk about it, but boy howdy, is that a good first issue. Well, I, I spent five minutes just looking at the last panel and Oof. of the first story and just kind of like unraveling my mind to deal with it yeah we'll talk about it it'll be good uh spoiler alert stay tuned i know i already said that but just keep on staying tuned okay bye